Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Amen. Amen. If you stay standing, we're going to read together from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's read it out together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are back in our series on disciples. We have this week and next week. Where we've been in this series so far is looking at what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to have him as our rabbi, as our philosopher, as our teacher, as our Lord. What does it mean for us to be his disciples, to follow him? The first week we talked about just the disposition of a disciple, to sit and listen, how you cannot be a disciple of Jesus and not listen to his voice. The second week, we talked about practices, how disciples practice their faith and grow in their faith and the many different ways that we do that as disciples. Last week, we talked about how Jesus challenges our beliefs, that sometimes we put up our own decorations in the house that we're building, and we have to, and what God does is he challenges us to make sure that our own decorations are not against his word. And so he shakes the foundation of our house so that we are left with the scriptures and what Jesus intends from us to understand. This week, we're talking about the mission of a disciple, what we're called to do, We're going to look at an example of how to do that in the midst of a culture that is antagonistic towards Christianity, in our particular case, the stoning of Stephen from Acts 7. And then what I want us to see is that what Jesus calls us to do as disciples of Christ is to live out a life that loves God and loves other people, even if it costs us something. So that's where we're headed today. But before we jump in, I have a question for you, like I've had the past several weeks, and it's this. Have you ever wondered why a pigeon walks so funny? It is a pigeon. Have you ever noticed a pigeon before? What a pigeon does is this. It takes one step, and what does his head do? It goes back. And then it takes another step, and what does it do? It goes forward. And this is how a pigeon Walks. By the way, in the first service when I did that, like eight people I was looking at and they were just doing this the whole time. (laughs) The reason why a pigeon does this is because a pigeon has really poor depth perception and cannot focus well. And so when it walks, it takes one step forward, but what happens to its head? It goes back. Why? Because it's trying to focus. And at any moment they take the next step, If they are not focused on the thing they're looking at, they will get distracted. They could get hurt. They can fly into your window thinking it's not a window. I think we have a similar problem when it comes to Christianity. Sometimes when we focus on God's word, we take a step in that direction. But in the process of us trying to focus ourselves on the truth of God's word, we either can get distracted Or in the next step we take, right, we kind of turn our head a little bit 
and we miss the mark or we run into an obstacle or we do whatever it is that a, a pigeon likes to do. Why? Because we have a hard time focusing on the object that we're aimed at. Jesus gives his disciples the object or at least the mission of our aim. That is to make disciples, right? It's to be our witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. But oftentimes, Christians, we can get distracted from that mission. In the part of the process of focusing on that mission, we can focus on other things instead. Sometimes we take one step forward, but then we end up taking two steps backwards. Sometimes, like a pigeon, we take the step of faith, but our mind is all the way back there. Sometimes, like a pigeon, our head is this way, we're thinking about it, but our actions are all the way back there. So like a pigeon, I think Christians can have a hard time really focusing on the mission that Jesus has called us to do, and that is to be witnesses. Let me ask several other questions that might spur some thoughts. Have you ever started something but didn't complete it? Maybe it's a house project. Several years ago, we went to go paint our house when we lived on Pennsylvania, just down the road. And I, I sorely uh, underestimated how long it would take to paint brick. All right, we had a brick house. And we were hand painting it. So we started it. I started on the front. Praise Jesus, because it took me two days to do that. And then for like the next nine months, all three other sides were still red. Okay, I, it just took too long. Finally, I got them done. But it was one of those things that took a lot longer than I expected. If you're like me, sometimes you might start a project in your home then realize it's way over your head and you have to hire a professional to undo the things that you just did. Whatever it might be, we have a tendency to stop and go, to be misfocused in different areas. And what Jesus calls his disciples to do is remain focused on the mission. Today, we're going to look at this generally and see those examples that I talked about from the, from, from the example of Stephen and what that means for us practically. But next week, we're going to be talking about what that means for us as a church contextually in our own body. So Acts 1.8 tells us we are to make disciples, we're to be the witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Let's talk about that. What does witness mean? What is a what is a witness? A witness is someone who declares. Richard Longnecker describes it like this. The Christian church, according to Acts, is a missionary church that responds obediently to Jesus's commission, acts on Jesus's behalf in extension of his ministry, focuses its proclamation of the kingdom of God and its witness to Jesus, is guided and empowered by the same spirit that directed and supported Jesus' ministries and follows a program whose guidelines for outreach have been set by Jesus himself. Here's what he's saying. Everything that we do as disciples is connected to Jesus' ministry. We are a continuation of what he is doing in the world and we are powered and supported by the same spirit and guided by the same will of the father. This is who we are. And Jesus says, what's your aim as Christians? To be my witnesses in the world. Now, geographically, we can look at Acts 1 and see, yes, start small in Jerusalem 
and expand outwards to the end of the earth. That is one aspect of it. I want to give you a second aspect to think through. And it's this, Jerusalem, people like you, people that you rub shoulders with, people who have the same ideas as you. We all love to speak into a vacuum. We all love to find people who think exactly like us in our stage of life that we can hang out with, people like you. Second, Judea, people kind of like you. These are people a little bit further away from you. They have some disagreements, but maybe some of the core foundational things that you have are in line with them. Samaria, people you don't like and people that don't like you, all right? And then lastly, the ends of the earth, people nothing like you. Throughout history, people have interpreted this both geographically and personally like this. So whether it is geographically, obviously that makes sense, or whether it's just, hey, personally, we just need to get out of our bubbles and be witnesses. We are to be in the culture, in the world, and be his witnesses and not silo away. And what I want us to see from our example of Stephen is how to do this in a culture that's antagonistic towards Christianity. Every culture has experienced their own challenges against Jesus and his principles. It looks different throughout all different points of history. Today, it looks different from our context to those that might be living overseas in a different context. But we all experience something about antagonism towards Christianity and his belief. And what the stoning of Stephen does for us, it allows us and it shows us a model from a disciple of how we are supposed to act in the midst of that. So let's look at Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged. That is the Pharisees and the religious leaders and gnashed their teeth at him. That is Stephen. Stephen has been arrested. He is now on trial. He is now before the council. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears. And altogether they rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered through the land of Judea and Samaria. So what can we learn from Stephen? Well, first is this. Disciples of Jesus focus on God when the noise gets too loud. Verse 54, it says, when he heard these things and he saw that they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. By the way, enraged is what you consider someone who's upset. Gnashing of teeth is disrespect and anger. Imagine someone getting so angry, they're gnashing their teeth together because they're just so upset with you, right? That's what gnashing their teeth, they're so angry, they can't even think to open their mouth, okay? This is how upset these people were. And yet, they're enraged, they're shouting, 
They're gnashing their teeth in disrespect and disapproval at Stephen. And what does he do? Does he focus on the face of his persecutors? No. What does he do? He gazes into heaven to see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, this right hand of God is really important. We just said that a part of our confession in the Apostles' Creed. When you look through scripture, this term hand of, uh, right hand of God is used over 40 times. I want to give you just four verses, okay, four, to help us understand what Stephen is seeing and the implication of this. Romans 8, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us? Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he holds what? The universe by the power of his word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. First Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now I could continue. I have several others in here, but here's what I wanted to see. In times of difficulty and persecution, you have a choice. You can look at the faces of those who are upset with you or against you, or you can gaze on God and see him for who he is. Here's how it's practically for us, because we may not be experiencing persecution like the level that Stephen was. But let me offer this. Some of us might be in marriages that are deteriorating and in trouble. Are you looking at the face of your spouse who you may have put unmet expectations on and all sorts of guilt, all sorts of shame on? Or you're gazing up to God who tells us that he has the authority over all things, including your marriage. Or what about being a person who maybe you're doubting your own salvation and whether God loves you, whether he cares for you and you're really struggling with some insecurity? Are you gonna gaze in the mirror at yourself and your own feelings? Or are you gonna gaze to God, the one who it tells us in Romans 8, is the one who has paid for it all. There's no condemnation in Jesus. What about the ones that's looking at the situations that's going around and the people that are being antagonistic towards you in your faith. Are you gonna gaze at them or are you gonna gaze at the one who sits at the right hand of the father who it says, your enemies will be made his footstool? Here is the reality. What you believe about Jesus and who he is in times of persecution and difficulty and antagonism against your faith will determine how you act. N.T. Wright says this, how can you live 
with a terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Here's what he's saying. Either Jesus is God in flesh, either God the Father is who he says he is, either we are empowered by the Spirit, or we are not. There is no in-between. And when we are facing persecution or whatever it might be, affliction, we can either say, I'm going to gaze on God or I'm going to gaze on something else. Either Jesus is worth suffering for or he is not. There is no in between. I don't know what our context and what we will live in in the next several decades in the United States. I have no clue. But here's what I know. Most of us have experienced very little persecution and very little hardship in some areas. However, as we look at the world, as we look at it as our context, as we look at the normal course of human history and the way Christians live, it has always been in affliction. It has always been in persecution. We are doing a disservice to our children and to our students and to new disciples in Christ if we are not preparing them to love God and see that he is worth suffering for. Because it is going to take those types of Christians, resilient Christians like the ones we have in the early church to see the gospel message moving forward, the types of Christians that understand that loving God and loving other people might cost us something in return, but it's completely worth it. J.C. Ryle says this, the heart of a true Christian longs for the blessed day when he will see his master face to face and go out no more. He longs to have done with sinning and repenting and believing and to begin that endless life when he shall see as he has been seen and sin no more. He has found it sweet to live by faith and he feels it will be sweeter still to live by sight. He has found it pleasant to hear of Christ and to talk of Christ and to read of Christ. How much more pleasant will it be to see Christ with his own eyes and never to leave him anymore? Here's what J.C. Ryle is getting at. What is this present suffering if we really grain Christ? Is it really suffering if the end of the day we get to look at heaven and say, wow, look at the glory of God and who Jesus is. Our suffering will pale in comparison to the glory that awaits us. Second thing we can look at in Stephen's life is that disciples of Jesus speak up when the world doesn't want to listen. Verse 56 says, he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man sitting at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covering their ears together. They rushed against him. A picture, a toddler, a little kid who doesn't want to listen to his parents. He's upset. He's enraged. And as you're trying to talk to this toddler, he does this. That is what's happening right now in this text. But what Stephen does is he speaks the truth. And what I want to point out to you is this. He doesn't soften his words. 
Acts 7, 51 through 53, we actually see what got them so enraged. He says this, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you also did. Which the prophets did, your ancestors, uh, which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you've not kept it. Here's what he's saying. You're stubborn and resistant to the Holy Spirit. He brings up their ancestors. By the way, this would be like if you're in an argument with somebody and you bring up somebody's mom. You're like, well, your mom said this. You're like, don't talk about my mama, right? That's what's happening here. He's bringing up their ancestors. And then third, you had everything. You had the law that was provided to you and yet you blew it. You haven't even kept the thing that God had given you for righteousness, for giving you. And you're still denying all the truth that, that is being presented to you. You even killed all the prophets that talked about Jesus. So Stephen does not mince his words here. He, he doesn't fall back and say, well, maybe this. No, he is very clear with the objection. But you know what also he tells them? That Jesus is sitting at the, at the right hand of the Father. He calls for their forgiveness in a moment. Prior to this and his sermon to this council in his defense. He talks about the risen Jesus. Here's the thing. We can be so focused as disciples to pick out the things in culture that we don't like. Again, we don't need to soften our words. There's a gentleness and humility we need to have, but we can point out things. But the question is, are we pointing them out just to point them out? Or are we providing a better solution, a better way? So when we see something in society or in our families or in our homes that we say, this is not of God, this is not what he wants for us, we don't leave it there. We say, Jesus offers a better way. He's a better solution. His thinking, his philosophy as disciples of Christ, being his witness means being and seeing what's going around and saying, listen, I don't know if that's what God wants. I think he has something better for you and talking to people and saying, listen, you are living in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord and is ultimately going to end in destruction. It's okay to do that, but we have to offer a better solution than just pointing it out into culture. And this also means that we don't use our own philosophies and our own opinions to do so. We can get sidetracked, remember? Pigeon vision, right? We can get sidetracked. We need to focus on what God has called us to do, and that is to be witnesses of his message, his gospel. The reality is the world is going to negatively react towards us. John 15 tells us if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus did not ask his disciples to hide away. He prepares them for this ultimate reality that persecution is part of the territory for being a disciple of Christ. I don't have time to get into his life, but Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, of all, at the end all of his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian too belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. 
We have to learn as disciples that we are not to hide away. We also need to learn how to be humble in public spheres as we talk about things. But ultimately, as a disciple, what we are called to do is speak the truth of who God is and what he came to do so that we can see those that scripture labels enemies of God so that they will become friends of God. That's what we're called to do. So how do we do this? Let's look at the third thing that Stephen shows us. Disciples of Jesus extend grace to their persecutors. Verse 60, he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, do not hold this sin against them. And after this, he died. The irony here is that Saul, whom we know later as Paul, he takes his Roman name, Paul. We know that he's sitting there and he approves the killing of Jesus. Or excuse me, killing of Stephen. In fact, Stephen here is contracted is contrasted with Saul. Saul is prideful. He is looking at people doing the killing and he is giving approval, whereas Stephen is humbling himself and taking a form of who Jesus was by his example. Not only do we see that just like Jesus, Stephen commits his spirit to the Lord, but then just like Jesus, he says, do not hold this sin against them. Normally, people would look at this and say, how foolish are you, Stephen? Just denounce your faith. Is it really worth dying over? Is it really worth believing this or believing that? It's foolish, Stephen. You can just do this and maybe then, you know, down the road, maybe 20 years from now, you can come back to Jesus. Or why don't you just deny it and then, you know, leave. And then in a week, come back and follow Jesus. Like, why can't you do any of that, Stephen? Think critically here, Stephen. Your life is at stake here. Why are you being so foolish? And why, even in the midst of this, are you asking for forgiveness for the ones that are killing you? How foolish is that? You should be calling down curses on them, Stephen. But what the world will call foolish, offering forgiveness and a pardon for your enemies like Jesus did, is what the cross actually makes a reality for the Christian. We have been empowered as disciples to forgive those who persecute us. And we've been given that directive. John 13 tells us, everyone will know that you're my disciples. Why and how? If you love one another. And this includes those who persecute us. There's also a trust. Look at this. Disciples of Jesus trust the plan of God even when it seems the enemy has won. Saul in chapter eight, verse one says, Saul agreed with him, putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke broke, uh, out against the church in Jerusalem. And all the apostles, or everyone except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So let's bring this back full circle to one eight, when he tells us to go and be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We can look at the persecution that happened and think, wow, this is really bad for the Christians. But you know what this really was? A fulfillment of God's plan. God is so much in control of what is happening that even in suffering and even in persecution, 
His will and his mission is being accomplished. Prior to this, they had stayed inside Jerusalem. He told them to go out and they didn't. Persecution is the thing that pushed the disciples of Jesus out to share the gospel, to share the message, to bring the gospel to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Do we really trust God's plan or are we motivated by something else? When we experience difficulty, trials, persecution, are we going to gaze at God and say, God, I trust you and I know that you're working this out? I wanna show you a few pictures. Where you see the red here, and pardon my terrible canvas skills, okay? What you see here in red is the influence of Christianity by 100 AD. Persecution started to happen and started to increase. And by 200 AD, this is the influence of Christianity. More persecution happened. It started out regionally and locally, and then a few Roman emperors here and there really started harping on it. It became illegal to practice Christian, the Christian faith. And by 300 AD, by the time it became legalized, this is the spread of Christianity. I want you to notice that persecution, suffering, trials is not a hindrance to the spread of Christianity. It is actually the vehicle in which we get to live out our faith. Imagine a church, imagine a world where Christians saw the afflictions that they're feeling and they said to themselves, thank you, Jesus, because this is an opportunity for me to show the world your glory, your authority, your power, that you are at the right hand of God. Because this is how the world sees Jesus. This is how they come and face to Jesus. When they see a Christian who is struggling, he's going through something and they ask, why is this person acting so different? Why is it so opposite of what we would expect? Because we actually have an answer to the problem. We actually have an answer to all the things that happen in this world, even an answer when someone is rude to us, mean to us, belittles us, or even persecutes us for our faith. We actually have a better solution to offer the world, and that's how this happens. And nothing has changed. If we want to see Lebanon, Wilson County, Tennessee, United States, and the world transformed for Jesus, you and I have to learn that to love God and love other people might actually cost us something. But that is the very thing that Jesus has asked for us to do. See, Stephen is a good example of somebody who's being persecuted, forgives his persecutors and provides this example of us for us. But he's not the ultimate example of what it means to love people enough to, be, to sacrifice something or to love someone enough to, to have something taken away from them. Jesus is that ultimate example. Jesus, as we were, are told in Colossians, he's the very imprint. 
He is God in flesh. And yet what he decided to do was come here as a little baby, develop, grow, start his ministry about the kingdom of God and the beauty of that kingdom. And ultimately, he was put to death for not only his claims, but his teachings. And he did that, why? For you and for me. Because included in his teachings, included in what he was sharing with people, he claimed a number of things. First, he claimed to be God. He claimed that he was the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the Passover lamb, the once for all sacrifice for us. And he showed us that he had the power to forgive sin. And ultimately for Christians, when you place your faith in what Jesus has done on the cross for us by taking our sin, being our substitute, and being the greatest victor over sin and the powers of hell, when we put our faith in that, why should we be scared of any affliction, any trial, any suffering, any persecution that comes our way? Jesus shows us what it means to love, even if it's at the expense of ourself. The problem today is we have too many Christians who want to love people, but they don't want it to cost them anything. And yet that's what Jesus calls us to think about. As disciples of Jesus, what does that mean? It means that if we want to see this happen, if we want to see the spread of Christianity grow and Jesus' message for them, that they're loved, have dignity, that people are far from God but need to be made right with him. If we want to see people come to know Jesus as their savior, then we need to take up his example. I'm gonna close with this scripture from James and then we'll prepare for the Lord's Supper. But if you're in our D groups, you just read this recently. It comes from James chapter one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, that whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, that perseverance finish its works, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So not only is God calling us to endure these things, yes, it's beneficial for the world, but it's actually beneficial for you and for me. Because the way that we become mature and complete is by walking through it. If you don't have the elements, you can raise your hand. We'll have some deacons that will walk by. But I want us to take us a moment and just to pray, get alone with God and ask just a series of questions. Have I been avoiding discomfort in my Christian life? When I have something happen to me, or a family member or something that's around me that's tragic, devastating, or harmful, or a trial, or whatever it might be, an affliction of some, of some type, 
Is my first inclination to look to God or to look at the problem? So let's take a moment, let's, let's just get alone with the Lord and just focus on the glory of God and just ask him to work in us as we consider his example this morning. First Corinthians says this, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is Christ's body broken for you. In the same way, He took the cup and after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This Christ's blood shed for you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.